only way we grow is by taking risk. And so beyond healing and soothing, we want to explore the world or when we're feeling well, we want to expand and go beyond. And so I think that's a really important aspect to create a framework from healing and restoration to flourishing. Welcome to the Artist Becoming Podcast. Hey, Jess. Hey, Shelby, a five, six, seven, eight. Join us in weekly conversations with performing artists across stages, studios, rinks, fields, and screens. Every conversation, a chance to dive deep into the story of their becoming. All right, Shelby, let's get on into it. Hey, Jess. Hey, Shelby. So we've shared with you guys that this season, we're broadening the spectrum of guest backgrounds and expanding the conversations that we're having here on Artists Becoming. I also think it's really important to draw from content that's been fueling or even challenging us, both in and outside the realms of art and creativity that we delve in. And so today's episode is a perfect example. For years, I have been a loyal listener of Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard and Monica Padman. At this point, I feel like they're my friends. And recently, much to my chagrin, they interviewed two experts who work at the intersection of science and arts, Susan Maximin and Ivy Ross, who are co-authors that recently published a book called Your Brain on Art. I was so intrigued by their research, uh, which reveals the science behind art's capacity to heal and optimize well-being. Surprise to none of you who know me well, I cold emailed the authors to simply just thank and honor them for their work and the potential influence of their findings to impact funding for arts and arts education. And what happened was I was incredibly humbled to hear back from Susan, who wrote and said that she would be honored to chat with us here on Artists Becoming. So today we dive deep into their humbling and hopeful findings around the emerging scientific field of neuroaesthetics, which was new to me, but so richly aligns with the work that we're doing here and the worlds of creation that we artists get to call home. Yeah, lucky me to be in partnership with Shelby, who only with Shelby's magic can a cold email lead to what I would consider one of the richest, most moving conversations I, I've I've had. Um, I was really humbled to get to be a part of this conversation, to share it with Shelby and with Susan. And oh, wow, this is a sit down, active listen, grab a pen and paper type of conversation we got to go really deep with Susan, who came with the most outrageous expanse of knowledge to put into really, really scientific context, just so many of the themes and topics we've grappled with as artists on Artists Becoming. And so Susan was just a gift. And I think the only other thing I'll say is that I was personally really excited to sort of touch on at the end of this conversation where some of Susan's work is headed, some of which was tied to my own experiences in therapy and something I haven't talked about on the podcast at all and was really happy to get to have Susan shed some light on where that work is going. So if you make it to the end, um, just can't wait to hear your thoughts. Right there, Susan, who is the founder and director of the International Arts and Minds Lab Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at the Peterson Brain Science Institute of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she is currently a faculty member in the Department of Neurology. She is also the co-director of the NeuroArts Blueprint. 
Welcome to Artist Becoming. Thank you for being here. If you just want to share with us a high level overview of what exactly is neuro arts and neuro aesthetics, maybe how did you find your way there? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here and I'm excited to talk with you both. So neuroaesthetics is something, I always say it's sort of like a quarter quarter word, right? It's such a big word, but at its very core, it's the study of how arts and aesthetic experiences measurably change the brain, body, and behavior, and how this knowledge can be translated into specific practices that advance health and well-being. And so we talk about neuroarts as the field, this emerging field, brand new field that really brings interdisciplinary folks together from public health, cognitive science, neuroscience, neurology, anthropology, sociology, and also people with lived experiences and practitioners and artists to really come together to think about how to solve some of the most intractable problems through the lens of the arts. And neuroaesthetics itself is the research and scientific pursuit at, of that goal. And you asked how I got started. So I've always been very interested in the arts and aesthetic experiences. And I'm a twin. And my sister is actually an artist. She's an artist of children's books, primarily both a writer and a, and an illustrator. But when we were 12 years old, she had a very serious farming accident and almost lost her leg. And if you're, if you know anything about being a twin, you're born in relationship. So you literally at a cellular level can read each other, you know, what's going on. And oftentimes I'd start a sentence and my sister would finish it. But when she had this accident, she was so traumatized that she really kind of shut down and her emotional life became very stuck and she became very depressed, um, very sad, very scared she really became quite isolated. And what she started to do was draw. And in drawing, she started to be able to see what she was feeling. So these invisible expressions that were really trapped inside of her started to come out. And she was able to share them with me so that I could communicate with her in a very nonverbal way, but in a very profound, authentic way. And I think, you know, in looking back, for me, that was the first time that I understood that the language of humanity is so much more than words. And it isn't to say that words aren't important, but sometimes words are not enough. Sometimes there are no words. And it turns out that we now know that there's a part of the brain called the BRCA region, that when you are in a traumatic situation, it shuts down. And the BRCA region is the language center of the brain. And so this ability to find other ways to get this out, whether it's in my sister's case, it was visual arts, but it can be music. It can be dance. It can be expressive writing. Sometimes it can be drawing stick figures, humming, using those somatic sensorial systems within us to really move this, this energy that's blocked out. And so that's kind of, I think, where I began to understand this. And then my love of nature and being in the natural world, I think really resonated with me from an aesthetic point of view, light, smell, sound, um, awe in nature, you know, little and big from seeing a, a bird's egg turn into a baby to a bird, you know, all the way to a sunset. So um, I really, I think I've been saturated in this. And then as I moved forward in, in, in college and in my work life, my undergraduate work was in therapeutic recreation and arts. 
and then got an advanced studies degree to understand translational work. How do you translate research into practice? And then how do you disseminate and scale that? And that moved me forward into working at Johns Hopkins. Um, I first started working in the School of Education on arts and learning. I started a company that was all about hands-on learning and sold that to a company called the Toronto Star that had a whole learning division and then started to bring this work into academia. We had a donor at School of Med who said, I'm really interested in making a commitment to Hopkins but one thing I want you to do is study the arts along with everything else you're going to study. We think the arts save us. And I was like, I agree with that. I've seen it. And so she allowed us to really go on a path to understand what we knew about the neurobiology of the arts and what more importantly, what we didn't know and begin to start to build this field in what we're calling neuro arts. So you mentioned the Peterson Brain Science Institute. Marilyn Peterson is the person that I attribute to really providing the fuel to make this field a field. Wow. I'm, um, <laughs> there was so, so much richness, first of all, in, in the story that you shared about yourself and your twin. And when you spoke to this idea that there's so much beyond words, where I'm threading that needle towards is that a very large part of our community are professional dancers, which is a Shelby and Mai's background. And that is a form of art that is without words, right? And from a very young age, you are expressing, you feel called almost by some celestial force to, to enter into this room and express to music in this nonverbal way. And it's it's very powerful. It's almost like the only way you know how to express it's something in a dancer that there's just something that that is more than what words can do. What's interesting about where we are meeting you is that so many of the conversations we've had before you have been in the context of artists themselves, almost not being able to tap into the healing power of what art can do for them, but but being faced by a, a traditionally conditioned environment in which they're dealing with their own mental health sort of issues because of the rigor or the competitiveness or some of the things that come along with being an artist. And so I'm curious in your work, where do you see folks like violinists or professional artists themselves tapping back into the power of art to heal perhaps other issues that they are themselves confronting? Yeah, you know, I think that healing is a landscape that we should explore but also flourishing, because I think we don't just want to cope and heal, we want to amplify. And so let me talk about that spectrum. You know, one of the most amazing things about people who are gifted and talented in dancing or any art form is that as a beholder, we're so gifted to be able to, to see that. And I think it was Annie Dillard who said, when you're looking at an airplane doing loop-de-loops in the sky, it looks seamless and graceful and beautiful, but for the pilot, the G-forces are almost killing them. And I sometimes think about that for dancers where, you know, the precision and the technical aspect and the wear and tear on the joints and tendons and muscles all are so that the stress, the anxiety, the performance that has to happen 
as an audience member, I can't see that because you're so good at what you do and you make it look so easy. But I think there is a wearing that happens as a professional artist. There's a part of the prefrontal cortex that actually comes online when you are a professional and you're learning something to master. So, you know, you can kind of go from interest to mastery and you're critiquing yourself all the time, right? You're you're trying to make sure that you've got the right point or you've got the right move or you've connected in the right way. And, you know, ultimately a lot of that becomes muscle memory, but there is a part of the brain that is always sort of making sure that you've done it right. There's another part of the prefrontal cortex that that actually comes on when that other part shuts down, when the sort of self-critiquing part shuts down and it's where flow is. And Mm -hmm. I think as a dancer, you've also experienced that sense of flow where it's timeless, it's easy. You know, you're moving through space in a way that just feels otherly and otherworldly. And so that's a place that really is a place of healing and a place of tremendous growth. There's a researcher named Charles Lim who he's at UCSF and he's done some really interesting work in improvisation where he can show you in multiple art forms where artists actually are engaging in that part of the brain that's the self-critique and also shutting that down and then engaging in the improvisational piece and so those are really sort of important states to understand there's also another part of the brain called the default mode network and it's kind of prefrontal kind of goes more towards the parietal lobe but it's very interested in um, self-knowledge. And so the other thing about the self, the default network that's interesting is that it goes to work when you're not bringing information in, when you're not you know, in action, when you're not you know, moving around being transactional. I think of it in some ways as a transformative part of the brain where you're daydreaming, you're mind wandering, you're talking to yourself, you know what you like, what you don't like, you, you start to sort of build that sense of identity and self. It's also sort of seen to be kind of part of the saliency network. And we can talk about what it means, something means to be salient. But I sometimes think that as high performers, um, we don't often give ourselves the time to pause in between the notes to really know what it, that we feel, that we want to do, that we think is good for us. And that's the beginning of, of really self-healing is knowing how you feel and being able to, to act on that. And then flourishing um, is a whole other sort of lane in the grocery store. Flourishing is really where you're engaging curiosity, playful exploration, a sense of awe and wonder where you're really exploring the world around you and taking risk. And, you know, the only way we grow is by taking risk. And so beyond healing and soothing, we we want to explore the world or when we're feeling well, we want to expand and go beyond. And so I think that's a really important aspect is to broaden that spectrum and to create a framework of from healing and restoration to flourishing. Wow. I just, yeah, this is, this is so my jam. And I'm just getting so excited about it. I think when you speak to awe and flourishing, it makes me think of a lot of my studies and research in positive psychology, which is just that like, as a collective, it's, we're not just all out here trying to survive. We all, you know, should and deserve and have the potential to thrive as human beings. And 
as performing artists and the majority of our circle and narrative is in this performance art space, I think we tend to operate with our emotions very close to our skin with this comfortability of, of expressing them in an artful way, but also kind of reconciling that expressive freedom or vulnerability with the constraints of our art form. And so, for example, I was just discussing this with a dancer, how when we were being asked to improv, like some people just really embrace that opportunity to move freely and others, it completely freaks us out. It's like, please just tell me what to do and I will perfect it. And for others, it's much more intimidating to have that space of freedom. And I'm just curious because um, some of your work and research speaks to the ways that art rewires the brain when you have these populations of people that are used to just incredibly intimate proximity to awe and beauty. It's not that we take advantage of it or take it for granted, but it's just that it becomes this lens through which we operate in the world. And yeah, I'm just curious of the neurological underpinnings of that perspective. So yeah, how would you say art rewires the brain? So just as a kind of primer, we're born with a hundred billion neurons and those neurons are activated by the way we bring the world in. As we bring the world in through sight, touch, sound. We know we have five senses, but some researchers are now thinking that we may have as many as 50 different sensorial systems and how we sort of navigate the world. Those sensorial experiences activate neuroplasticity. And so we then have quadrillions of synaptic connections in the brain that are creating endless circuits and neural pathways. These neural pathways are the things that underlie your emotion, your physical movements, your memory, basically everything you do. So when you're engaging in an art form, you're actually creating some synaptic connections to make them stronger and significantly stronger. And then by design, we're also weakening synapses. So, you know, we're building these stronger pathways through these highly salient experiences, but we're also sort of weakening other synaptic connections that we're not using. And so when I say a salient experience, saliency are those moments that really resonate with us on a neurobiological level. So for a dancer, for a professional dancer, you would have your own sort of relationship to these salient experiences. And it could be, you know, particular pieces or particular types of music or a particular dance style. But the truth of the matter is you can't, none of us can pay attention to all the sensory stimuli that's coming into our bodies at any given moment. And so we just couldn't manage the amount of emotions that would emerge from that. So our brains are experts at filtering out so many inputs that we deem that are irrelevant and we focus our attention on what we think is pertinent. So something that's salient to you is something that's practically important or emotionally important. So that starts to lay groundwork for sort of how you uniquely experience the, the world. And so arts and aesthetic experiences are actually, you know, very important for being able to build that. Um, there's a researcher named Anjan Chatterjee who created something, a theoretical model called the aesthetic mindset. And basically it's, it's a model that looks at why your experiences, why your individual experiences are going to be different from someone else's because no one's experiences are exactly the same. And I think that's another important piece is that I might say that's a beautiful dance and you might say that's a beautiful dance, 
but why I'm saying it's beautiful is going to be based on my knowledge and meaning, my sensory motor, and also my emotional evaluations that come together to create a particular sensorial experience. Wow. This is fascinating. This is, I'm so expanded by this. I think something that you were just speaking to, a couple of things that I find so interesting is how you're giving so much perspective to that dancer experience of there is such a mastery in a very specific context where you can't fire all of those different systems at once and you do hone in on one particular. And if we're talking about a dancer and you have a set of exercises and a type of music and all of these sensory experiences that layer in an actually very ritualed, calculated way, you do become really, really narrow in in that one lane and in that one part of your brain, perhaps, or that one part of your sensory system that's firing to perfect. And so many artists and dancers experience burnout at some point because that one system is just firing for such an extended period of time. And all these other sensory parts of you that you could tap into or rely upon are kind of getting neglected despite feeling like you're in an artistic experience. And I think reflecting on my dance career, I don't know how often I found that flourishing state. Whereas post my dance career, because I have the luxury of exploring all these different sensory experiences, whether it's being deep in nature or painting or pottery and using all these other modalities, I'm able to find flourishing more easily than when I was actually a quotation mark professional artist. And one of the modalities through which I found a lot of healing is with sound. And I'm curious if you could kind of speak to research on sound healing. And I personally think it's it's something that for dancers post-career, something that my body awakens to in a really powerful way. And I'm curious if you could speak a bit to what you've learned about sound healing. Sure, sure. Well, and, and what you're saying about this idea of you've created such strong neural pathways around particular kinds of salient experiences that have been important for your career, and maybe you haven't built that kind of neural muscle in another way. I just want to say the good news is, is that neuroplasticity doesn't stop at any age and it is a total use it and it will grow. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a term that says neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm -hmm. And so changing those sensory inputs, you will begin to wire other neural pathways. And so it's really a lifelong experience. And I think that's maybe one of the most magical things when we learn that neuroplasticity is not limited to youth. The other thing that's important to say is that these kinds of experiences, arts and aesthetic experiences in all their forms, alter a complex physiological network of interconnected systems. So neuronal systems, psychological systems, immune and endocrine systems, circulatory systems, respiratory systems, and higher order brain things like cognition, affect, and motor and reward. So when you are dancing, all of these systems are activated at the same time interchangeably. So people ask me if I could do any art form, what is it? And I always say dance, 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 Mm -hmm. because it's such a highly immersive 
psychologically, physiological experience, and you don't have to be good at it. And I think when you're a dancer who's trained to dance in a certain way, it may be that you need to cross train other art forms in order to get to that lack of judgment. And then maybe you can come back to it. I think that's an interesting kind of thing. But to your question about sound, um, you know, I can understand why sound would be really important and effective for you because in some ways dance is vibrational. You know, you feel the music, you move to the music and sound is so vibrational, right? Sound is one of those things like smell that doesn't bypass all of the systems, but is comes to the limbic system pretty quickly. So you're feeling these vibrations, you know, we're 60% water, our bodies are 60% water. So sound, if you've ever seen sound vibrate through water, it changes the dynamics, shapes the water. Well, sound helps to shape us and certain sounds help to bring us into homeostasis and helps to bring us into balance. And we're learning a lot more about how these different notes and sound levels can do that because they resonate through us. You know, I mean, you think about things like how things like x-rays work or fMRIs work, you know, they can see you because they're actually resonating through you. Um, so I, I think there's some really interesting work happening in sound healing. One of the things that I think is really revolutionary, so there's a researcher at MIT who's using 40, 40 hertz of sound and 40 hertz of light to impact the plaque of people that have Alzheimer's. And they're finding that this combination of light and sound at 40% is actually helping to move that plaque into the waste system of the brain and eliminate it. And so I think we're just beginning to understand from a neurobiological point of view, the impact of sound. And I don't know if you ever use tuning forks. This is a great Ivy story. Ivy often carries tuning forks in her purse with a hockey puck and she'll hit it and use it in stressful situations for herself or others. And you can immediately see people kind of come into a calm state. And so there is this idea that nitric oxide is released in these sound experiences that actually brings more blood oxygen into the circulatory system. And that helps to make you feel more at ease. And so there's more research needs to be done in these areas, but I think sound is kind of an overarching healing modality. Hmm. Oh, I love it. It's like a spell that she did. It's like a calm spell that she might be able to cast right out of her purse. I love, I'm going to borrow that one. I love that we're going towards this power of, of sound in particular, because two things, one is speaking to the nostalgia that comes from hearing a particular song, perhaps that we dance to or composition. I read this quote that just resonates with me so deeply, which is that nostalgia is memory without anxiety. And Mm -hmm. I think that so many of us who have parted from our professional careers as artists or artist athletes, there's this very kind of push and pull emotional relationship that we have with this first love that gave us so much and that took so much from us. And when I hear certain specific compositions of you know, Stravinsky, Tchaikovsky, that I have spent so many meaningful moments of my life with, I just have this visceral emotional reaction and this yearning for that time of my life, even though so much of it was extremely challenging and extremely uncomfortable. And so I know that um, in your book, there's, I'm going to read a quote, you say, uh, you know, what helps memory become long-term is how much emotion and novelty are associated with experience. And it just really made me reflect on why 
we hold such emotional attachment to this art form. And then coming back to what we were just speaking about, which is, as you said, dance is such an immersive art. It's so sensorial and it's pretty much, I'd argue because I'm biased. It's like the peak of so many of our senses. And we've spoken on this podcast as well with some of our peers who are Olympic figure skaters. And I think in whether you're, you know, a professional athlete of any kind or an artist athlete or a performing artist, you're creating your art with every fiber and cell of your body and being. And to know how that feels at a high level is also to know how it feels to live without it entirely. So there's this very, um, identity crisis, whatever you want to call it, that happens when you decide to formally move on or shift careers. We talk a lot about career transition here as well. And it's just this kind of emotional attachment that we then have to reconcile and somehow draw from into our next career. And you speak in, in your brain on art to the idea of transfer. And so I just thought that maybe we could kind of discuss different ways that transfer, you know, as it refers to the way that we can leverage certain skills that we learn and practice and ritualize in one facet of our lives, transferring onwards into another into different aspects of our lives and just kind of any like salient bits of research that you've discovered in that space or experience that you may have had on your own. Yeah, well, I, I think to start as a dancer, you are, you've done something that's so extraordinary in, in the sense that, you know, you've changed the structure of your brain, you've changed the neural pathways of your brain, you've connected these systems in such a precision way. And I think it's really important to, you've had achievements, you've had recognition, but you've had that whole body experience of fully empowered as a dancer in any genre, in any, in any dance form. And so I, I think that it's also when you make a decision that you no longer can or want to, or, or are able to work at that level of performance, there is a loss, right? There is grief. There's a sense of saying goodbye to a part of your life and I think with kindness and dignity and an understanding of a loss. And I think a lot of times we underestimate grief and the value of ritual for something ending. And in the book, we don't talk specifically about the end of an art career, but we do talk about things like chronic pain or end of life or palliative care. And in some ways, you know, there are similar systems where you have to say goodbye to a certain quality of life in order to embrace the next quality of life and to understand what is that, what does that really look like? And so I think we, as a culture, don't know how to grieve something that we're losing and how to really then recreate, you know, there's this model of birth, death, and rebirth. And I think rebirth is what you're talking about. And what does that look like? And what does the future really look like in that space? And that's a really important transition. So when you talked about transfer in learning communities, transfer is the highest form of learning. It's where you take something from one part of your life and you move it into another. And there's a lot of skills that we learn that don't transfer, but with art, and these are things like decision-making, creativity, collaboration, meaning-making, a lot of the executive function skills that you've learned, a lot of the sort of brain agility or cognitive abilities that you've learned as a dancer, 
those we're seeing in research transfer to other areas in your life. And so seeing how they show up for you as maybe being more agile in making decisions or maybe being a really great collaborator or or having a sort of creative brainstorming processes that you can do over here, or even thinking about things like executive function, how do you put things in order and how do you plan and how do we make that work? And so, so the skills that you've learned as a dancer, uh, physiologically and psychologically, beautifully transfer. And I think acknowledging that and recognizing it and knowing that it's because of that deep training that you've been able to do that is helpful, but it doesn't take away the fact that you still have to grieve. You need rituals for letting something go in order to move through that liminal space to another, to another domain. Oh, thank you for acknowledging that. I think I'm really touched by that. Um, I'm really, really touched by that. I think Shelby and I's, so much of our friendship has been, we really met when we were first kind of grieving our retirement from our former careers. And we were in like a very tender chapter of life, you know, moving on from dance. Shelby was moving into higher education. I was performing on new type of stage. And then over the course of our of five years or however long, I think that whole course has been an exploration of grieving that former career and artist becoming was born out of the digesting. And I think, you know, there's stages of grief and one of them is even just almost reconciling or metabolizing whatever that chapter might have been processing that. And then there's all these stages. And I think that when you almost piece that transfer into it, it it feels like it gives purpose to grief. There's something very empowering about how you described that knowledge transferred to me, because at some point in a grieving process, you want to feel that feeling of purpose, or perhaps if it's the end of your life, it's reconciling something else. But if it's the end of a life within a life, something feels very empowering about reconnecting with purpose and transferring from one lifetime into another. And I think artist becoming has been that bridge that we created for ourselves to walk that, that transfer and we're still walking it. And I think that like what I'm, what light bulb is flashing for me right now is that there's a purpose in, and I feel like a vision that so much of what we are talking about is stuff that Shelby and I have talked about in regards to where do dancers go to grieve and find ritual in that transitional experience, moving from that lifetime into the next. And so you've just got me marinating on iterations of how artists becoming could evolve to equip some of the tools of learning to transfer and holding ritual for the grieving experience of a performing arts career, but also how to infuse a dance curriculum with some of this research you're already speaking to, which is already available, which is sound healing or other forms of art that sit in pockets within a classical ballet training to find flow or to improv and how as an arts world, I feel like we are failing to do that. I just feel like for students in a dance school, there are people that are working to redirect curriculum, but we're kind of failing to pull from resources that already exist, which is art itself already living in so many forms and infuse that into curriculum, you know, to empower artists. So 
I don't have a question. I'm just reflecting on what you're sharing and I'm really inspired. Well, a couple of things that come to mind with what you just said, and I think it's really important to say that moving from one thing to another is not a straight line and it's backwards and forwards, it's left and right, it's twists and turns. And that processing of change, that transformation of change takes time in its own way. And it's never going to be the same for anybody. So you can't really judge what somebody else's time frame is going to be. But I think acknowledging it and recognizing it is super, super important. And, you know, thinking about what are some of those rituals, like it could be working with clay or working with yarn or working with your hands in some way. It could be creating um, a garden space. It could be writing something, thinking about what are those ways where you can honor those shifts and those turns. And that's that's really, I think, very important. And in the curriculum side, I think self-care and really honoring this idea of flourishing and being multidimensional is probably not true in the dance curriculum, but it's not true in a lot of curriculums. You know, we're asking people to get in bubbles as opposed to be fully themselves. And I think that's starting to change, but I think the societal sort of impressions that are being put on to young dancers, young artists, really are more limiting than they are creatively inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yes. Amen. Oh! <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're bowing down. I, you know, this brings to mind the bit, I'm just flipping through the pages right now, but the powerful story that is told about the professor who had this kind of realization that so much of teaching is entertaining versus educating. I really loved that takeaway because Jessica and I were just speaking with another, another lovely expert that is joining our roster on artists becoming this season. She works in wellness programming for a dance school in New York city. And we're talking about how easy it is to conflate processing our emotions with performing them Mm -hmm. um, in different spaces, whether it's teaching in in a classroom or, you know, learning a specific dance curriculum. I think it's really like too common for these conflations to happen. And there's this story about a professor who decides that if he played music as the students filed into the classroom, that they would perhaps their minds would be oriented to a different type of absorption. And in fact, he saw incredible results with the students' capacity to retain the information that they were learning. It reminded me personally of an inscription above the theater stage at uh, the Royal Danish Ballet, which is where I began my career as a professional dancer in Copenhagen. There is a Danish inscription. I might be pronouncing it wrong, but it's Il Blot Lust. And it basically... It refers to the arts's responsibility to educate and inform, but it translates directly to not purely for pleasure. Uh-huh. And that just really hit, like I spent years looking at it, sitting in the audience while I was watching rehearsals or watching performances that I wasn't dancing in and just kind of reflecting on, you know, the arts really do have this massive responsibility to orient the way that we live and navigate through and mold and leave this world. And so much of, of your book, your brain on art speaks to this responsibility. It's too easy to squander. And hopefully now that we have this abundance of science and research and hard fact behind the pleasant experiences and the pleasurable sensory takeaways of being with and around art, that 
you know, more influential heads will turn to uplift this as an education that is not just a nice to have, but it's an absolute necessity. You know, we, I think when you think about the Renaissance and the Renaissance brought us some great art, but it also brought us this idea of rational thinking was more important than the creative mind. And that continued on and on and on. And, you know, we, we started to value idea of knowing facts as opposed to creation. And, you know, a lot of things got sidelined. And then in the United States in the seventies, when Sputnik launched and um, for all the right reasons, American education systems did the exact wrong thing was to say, we're all about math. We're all about science. We're all about engineering. The arts are nice to have, not a have to have. We started to say to our kids and to the world that those things are not important as opposed to saying we're wired for the arts, which are how we become better at all of these different kinds of disciplines. And I think that really shifted our sensibilities. And so, you know, I have two mottos. One is nothing without joy. And because I think joy is where the action is. I think having fun, enjoying something is actually how you learn best. And that's what Dan Levitin was speaking to in the book when he started playing music and he started telling jokes and he realized that it's in the joy and the immersiveness of life where we get the most, it's the saliency, it's the most, it's the savoring the flavor. And then my second, my second mantra is eventually I get something done, (laughs) but it's really true. It's really, really true. It's like, you know, sometimes you can't make something happen. And I think there's something about that too. Like we're a culture of checking the boxes, which is very different than, you know, the second line of our book is your brain on art, how the arts transform us not how they make us more efficient or how they make us more productive. Yet the irony is that's what happens when you transform, you do more, you do better, you do more creatively and you help the community. Yes. Yeah. I think it's that societally we've started going outside in instead of inside out in terms of we're thinking process, efficiency, more, harder, faster. And sometimes it's in the transformational experience that you really you create the ability and the capacity for your container to even think wider or, you know, some of the greatest inventions or creations or things that we know today were people that thought really out of the box and probably were experiencing quite transformative art or sensory experiences at the seedling of that creation, you know? 100%. That's the only way it happens, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and probably too, in collaboration, Right. And so there's this fallacy that, you know, somebody's that's so much smarter than anybody else has figured something out. And that's not true. Right. That's a mythology. And I think we often are seeing now where it's about group science. It's about collaboration, co-creating. You know, it's not about this like light bulb that goes on and suddenly there's this answer. Yeah. I, I don't want to go too far in a different direction, but it's making me think of AI and chat GPT and this great threat of technology where humans are having to prove to ourselves and to each other that we are capable of things that technology is in fact not capable of. And what is born of that is empathy, compassion, human design, and our capacity to think uniquely and authentically and creatively. And I was just listening to a podcast the other day and they were discussing how uh, an MFA is the new MBA. Um, because you can enter anything now into a search engine and it'll spit something out, but this capacity to really 
wire our brains uniquely from artistic perspectives and artistic orientations is something that is truly irreplaceable. Yeah, and nothing, you- there's not a machine that's going to do that. And and you know, I we talk about sensorial literacy or this idea of it's, machines should be able to do the things that are utilitarian for us. But the unique human things are exactly the things that you've talked about, this idea of imagination, creativity, collaboration together, you know, all these things that we uniquely can do. And to be honest, I think we have not reconciled that we've been letting those things slide, you know, and that that's really where you're talking about internal versus external, external versus internal. I think coming out of COVID, the world is so fragile. And I think we have an opportunity to change the narrative and there is real culture shift going on. Like people don't want to go back to 40 hour work weeks in a car for two hours every day. I think we're really saying that's breaking us. And what we need to be doing is expanding our capacity, not just surviving. I've learned so much. Can I ask you one more question? Because I'm so jammed up right now. First of all, what are you currently working on? And this might not be where your work is focused right now, but I would assume it's quite adjacent. I'm curious how much psychedelics have come into the conversation for you. I've worked with a therapist with sound and with psilocybin as a part of like a big part of my process post my career and it found it really transformational and I'm curious if any of your research in combination with art has been connected to that? Sure. Well, let me start there. Yes. The answer is yes. We're working with a multi-institutional consortium looking at set and setting related to psychedelic experiences. So set and setting is kind of the nest of how you enter into that space, how you have an experience, and then how you integrate. And so we're working at Hopkins, looking at different types of music to begin And so we're looking at five different scenarios. One is a standard playlist. One is a self-designed playlist. Another is looking at indigenous sounds, Mm -hmm. another um, nature sounds. And then the fifth one is kind of a combination. And so we're about ready to start that first without a psychedelic and then with a psychedelic. And we're using fMRI because we think that the pathways for music and psychedelics um, are very similar. And so we're really interested in understanding that. Then we'll move into things like texture, color, cultural preferences. So we're really trying to wrap around and then we'll do all of the same things with psilocybin experiences. So we'll be able to kind of compare and contrast kind of what's happening in that. And we're trying to provide ultimately guides with more knowledge about how set and setting works at those different milestones. And then UCSF, Adam Ghazali's lab, we're working with them and they're doing a much bigger exploratory on all different types of set and setting experiences to kind of see what the noise and what the signal is. And so they're they're just looking very broadly. And then McGill University is using meditation and music. So trying to get people to be very conscious of their breathing and focus when they're in a psychedelic experience and things feel out of control, how they can have some sense of agency, not control, but agency in that space. And so we're coming together to look at things like protocols and outcome measures and what technology we're using to measure things. So that's 
that's happening. And that's a really kind of big effort. So in the lab, we're working on that. We're also working on creative youth mental health and how we're looking at different art forms and youth to youth. So we're working with youth to identify what they think is important for creative self-expression. And that's going to be a global project with the World Health Organization. And then the NeuroArts Blueprint is a really big effort for our lab also, and Ivy as well. And so that's really trying to put up the tent poles to really create this field. So what needs to happen in research, in practice, in policy, and funding, and then communication. And the book in many ways is an extension of that in that we wanted to create a book for anybody that could understand why the arts are not just kind of a a nice to have and to really begin to bring this work out to anybody that would might be interested, a daughter, a mother, a sister, a brother who might have someone that needed it or someone that was moving through their own life experiences. So now the book has been really, really successful. I mean, it's five weeks. It feels like five years. And Ivy and I are now stepping back to really see where we want to take this based on the input that we're hearing, because I think we have met this need in a way that the need is so great. And I think you're describing it in your own world. People that have different physical or mental health challenges are also saying, this has been missing for me. This makes sense. And so we're trying to figure out how do we help to ensure that the arts and aesthetic experiences get everywhere. Um, and that anybody has, it's, you know, it's affordable, it's immediate and it's accessible. And so there aren't many things that do that in that way. And so the arts, you know, anybody can make art. And, and that's something that I think we're really interested in exploring more. That is so fascinating. I, I want to thank you for, for the context you gave on the work you're doing with set and setting in regards to the psychedelic experience and with the music and the playlists. In my own experience with a guide, it, it really is all about the music. And I think that's when I first discovered how powerful sound was, you know, leading up to my first experience, I had maybe 10 sessions that were just music and meditation and breathing before ever experiencing it as well with psilocybin and with the guide. And then that I started guiding meditation myself with music and with breath because without even the the added sort of power of the psilocybin the music and the breathing once you tap into that there's just something so cathartic and and powerful about that so i'm i'm really really thrilled to hear that that that's work that you're doing i feel really passionately about I'm curiously passionate about how that could be brought to dancers at some point as a grieving for me it was how i moved through a lot of that process of rediscovering my identity and reconnecting to myself and releasing, you know, all kinds of trauma that can be released through that experience that I experienced through that. So I love your courage in that. I want to just say that, I mean, it's, it's to choose to move towards the light and to not kind of stay in it requires real bravery. So um, I, I love hearing that. I love Thank hearing you. that. Yeah. And once you've done that, you just, when you have an experience, I think the powerful transformative nature of art is that when you have a transformative experience, you feel a force within you that is like, as though you must generously share it. The mm -hmm. experience of transformation is that 
when you experience something that rejuvenates you or creates an opening or uh, a healing, you like a pay it forward type of energy and vibration. You can't help but want to give that to the next and to the next. And I think that is where art or, you know, medicine or art or the combination of the two have this power on a planetary level or communal level is because it creates an impetus for the individual to want to pass it forward. And so there's a a human, a link in humanity there that sometimes we lose when we extract art or collaboration and we silo ourselves, you know, and yeah, so I could go on, but (laughs) I'm just so, so impressed. The word I've heard today from a number of people earlier in the day, and I love this term, do you know what a rhizome is? Do you know that term rhizome? No. It's so there are certain plants that the way that they grow is they 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 propagate underneath the ground and they like have little bulbs that shoot up and then those little bulbs shoot up and those little bulbs shoot up. And so if they propagate under the ground and it might be equivalent to like the way a dandelion lets out thousands and thousands of, and it's unstoppable and it's unpredictable. And I think that's what the arts do too, is that there are these seeds that go everywhere because you released it. And it's the act of that releasing. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how you're going to touch somebody, but the very nature that it's in the air or underground ensures that it's going to land someplace and thrive. And I think that's, um, that connects the world, right? That connects us to each other. I have shivers. I have absolute shivers. So excited to follow your work. I hope and pray that this is just, this book is just the very beginning of transformative shifts in the ways that we think and the ways that we choose to spend our dollars and spend our, our most valuable human asset art, which your book speaks a lot to as well. So Ivy Ross and Susan Magsman, your brain on art, please spread the word and share it. And Susan, we're just incredibly grateful for your time and the passion behind your work. We receive it so, so abundantly. Thank you so much. This is really a pleasure. And I just love that you are focusing on this part of the human experience because Sometimes I think we forget the gift and the sacrifice and the courage that you've brought as these great performing artists and how you live your life. So thank you for letting me see that too. I really appreciate it. And it's just, um, yeah, it's a humble honor to sit in your presence. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm just grateful. I'm really grateful to hear your stories too. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. A couple of ways to keep connected with us at Artists Becoming first one is here on the podcast. So go ahead and subscribe and write us a review to stay on top of our weekly guest artist conversations. And two, follow along with us on Instagram at Artists Becoming for sneak peeks and inspiring content. DM us if there are dream artists, athletes, performers, psychologists, wellness whoever, whoever it is that you'd love to hear from or topics that you'd like for us to unpack. We want to invest our time in conversations that enrich you. So let us know. And lastly, share, you know, fire up the group chat, share to your stories, comment, and just stay connected with us. We're here for your becoming.